Perfectionist Musicians podcast. Take action to find healthy perfectionism. Discussions about the background of successful careers in music, performance, arts and science. The thought is different than the event. This part we all know it. But when it comes to assessing our performances and musical capabilities, we may forget about this old wisdom. Just think about it. If the thought is different than the event, it means that your evaluation, what you think of your performance, does not equal to your actual performance. Since thoughts and language are symbolic, they refer to things, but they are not the same that they refer to. In the recent years, a new method has been more and more commonly applied among musicians as it helps to deal with their difficulties. It's called acceptance and commitment therapy, for short, ACT. Despite its name, it is more a way of thinking than a therapy, so nothing to worry about. ACT uses acceptance and mindfulness strategies and originally was applied in psychotherapy. What also caught my attention regarding ACT is that it addresses the role language plays in human suffering. ACT is being tested in music education settings to show musicians how actually they are able to perform up to their planned standards despite their experience performance anxiety. So ACT's goal is not to fight against or eliminate anxiety. Instead, these little games which ACT offers are mental exercises that enhance our flexibility to accept our physical and mental states that we will be free with achieving what we want. In this week's episode with Dr. David Junkers, clinical psychologist and performance anxiety specialist, I give you some insight into how ACT works in practice by presenting one of the most typical exercises from ACT. I encourage you to come and join us doing the exercise. For this, you only need a pencil and a piece of paper. So let's get started. So again, if you have perfectionism, uh, then perhaps the second exercise that we've been talking about would be helpful too. So imagine you have that thought right after you performed, I'm not a good musician. Let's say even you have harsher thoughts like, uh, I'm a terrible musician, I'm a terrible person, I give a terrible performance, et cetera. So I'll invite you to to get that page, that piece of paper, please. So this is gonna be an exercise teaching you uh, something that happens in our mind beyond our awareness. And if you can become better aware of it, then it'll help you with your diffusion ability. So I'd like for you to write two words on the page. Um, on the left-hand side, write the word me. Yeah. And then on the right-hand side, actually write a phrase. It's more than just one word. My evaluations of my performance. Mm-hmm. All right. And we're going to come back to those two because I want to show you uh, with more clear examples first uh, the lesson I want to teach you. So flip over the page for me, please. And I'm going to yep. have you write two simple words here. The first word is alcohol. So put that on the left-hand side. Left, yes. Mm-hmm. And then the second is cheetah. Uh, yeah, the alcohol on the left and cheetah, fastest animal in the world, on the right. So our minds all the time are engaged in the act of relating things together. And by things, I, I mean things or I mean objects, events, people. Uh, this is how we learn. Human beings are relational in how we learn. So we do this all the time. And one of the the really cool things about ACT is it addresses the role that language plays in human suffering. 
And before ACT was a therapy, there was about at least 10 years, maybe longer, of research into how language in particular exists. And, and uh, there was a very elegant analysis of language called relational frame theory, or RFT for short, which led to the creation of ACT. The founders of RFT are the founders of ACT. And RFT essentially is an analysis of human speech, an analysis of human cognition. So in that analysis, we talk about how there's very predictable patterns within speech and with thinking. And some of these are relating. The act of relating things together is a pattern that just happens all the time. How often do we compare ourselves to other people? How often do we compare people to people? It's very much embedded in our thinking, right? So I'm gonna teach you that sometimes that act of relating is helpful and sometimes it's totally arbitrary. So let's engage in an exercise now showing you how arbitrary this can be. Uh, I'm gonna ask you three questions about these two words, alcohol and cheetah here. First question is, how is alcohol better than a cheetah? So it's a strange question. How is alcohol better than a cheetah? Well, alcohol will get you drunk better than a cheetah will get you drunk. So in that sense, it is better as an intoxicant as a cheetah is, right? We can both agree to that. Second question then, how is a cheetah better than alcohol? What's your answer? Do you have any answers of your own? I'm curious. <laughs> alcohol can't run. You're right. Yes, that, exactly. So a cheetah is a better runner than alcohol, a much faster runner than alcohol. Very good. Again, these are arbitrary relations, but hold on to that idea in a sec um, because they inform our behavior, even though they're arbitrary. Next and final question is, how is alcohol the same as a cheetah? That's the toughest one. That's a hard one, yes. Yeah. Can I get some help from you? Sure. Alcohol is bad for your health sometimes, obviously, and a cheetah, obviously, is bad for your health, too. So they're both potentially dangerous. If you dangerous. meet cheetah, yes. Yes, if you meet a cheetah and you're not very fast, then yeah, you're in trouble. <laughs> okay. So they're the same. They're the same in that part. Okay. So do you see how uh, the mind is quick to come up with answers to these very silly and arbitrary questions? But that's how learning occurs. Our minds just are always engaged in relational learning where we're comparing or contrasting or equating things together. And there's other patterns embedded in our thinking as well. Uh, and ACT and RFT have delineated what those patterns are. But we use these patterns here because they're very common. So now let's flip over the page. Let me ask you the that same three questions. Coming, and I was that was coming, yes. And I will have the same questions, I guess. Yes, yes, you, you learn quickly. <laughs> so first question then, how are you better than your evaluations of your performances? Hmm. That's a hard one. I'm trying to summarize, and probably I will ask you also to give me examples in the role I'm representing now, that young little violinist who doesn't believe in herself and talking to you as a therapist, how I am better than my evaluation of my performance. That was yes. the question. That is the question. Well, first of all, I'm a person. I'm not a violinist only. I've got a personality. Exactly. There are people who really love how witty and fast I am and how creative I am. And there were people who really loved me and adored who I was as a violinist and as a person as well. So Very good. my performance is only only really tiny part of my life compared uh, to... Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and just to make clear, and, and here's where ACT is helpful. Remember, the thought is different than the event. So... We're talking specifically about the thoughts of your performance, 
not your performances. How are you better than the thoughts of your performances? And I think your, your answer is a good one, and it still applies here. If your thoughts are negative and self-critical, then you are more creative. You are more optimistic than those thoughts, right? You are perhaps even more witty. Maybe those thoughts say the same thing all the time, and they're not witty thoughts. They're not creative thoughts. They're just tired and old, and they never change, right? So you are more witty, you are more creative, you are better, in a sense, than those thoughts. Does that make yes, sense? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, what really happens by thinking of my thoughts and thinking of myself, that I detach myself from it, I detach my thoughts from myself. Yes. Exactly, have you yes. the diffusion, the fusion. So by answering exactly. these questions, I just realized how I can detach these two things and they are definitely diffuse yes absolutely you're getting it and remember humans engage in this act of mental relating all the time and the second part that, that we should talk about that i haven't yet is the relationship teaches us how to respond so if you believe that your thoughts are better than you how might you respond you might respond with anxiety when those thoughts occur you might respond with shame when those thoughts occur because if you believe those thoughts as an entity are better than you, then oh man, you're just, you're gonna be emotionally driven and emotionally reacting to those thoughts all the time. So it's an act of relating and then responding. Responding to those things that we are relating together based on the relationship. So second question. Mm -hmm. Yes, please. How are those thoughts better than you? My negative evaluation uh, thoughts. Yes, yes, your evaluations of your performance. How are they better than you? Well, they are the, the good critics, actually, that in a way, they teach me that what can I do better? They point out problems. And mm -hmm. if I didn't have these thoughts, I wouldn't know what to improve. You hit the nail on the head. I couldn't have said it better if I tried. <laughs> yes, they, they give you good information to work with, right? They point out your mistakes. So they are... Uh, like an alert system or an alarm system. Hey, pay attention to these mistakes here. You didn't do that part correctly or whatever. Maybe my answer would be they're more reliable than I am because they show up on time every time, right? You know, if you have a performance, you can expect they are always going to be there after your performance. So me as a human, I'm not always that reliable. I may not always show up on time or every time, right? So, so they're helpful and they're also more reliable than you. Yes, I, I've got just this idea that me, as a person, as a musician, I'm evaluating my performance overall. And these mm -hmm. negative thoughts are the, the pointers. So they pick on details rather than evaluate the overall performance. They could evaluate the overall performance. It's certainly possible. It depends on what they do. But the idea is that, you know, uh, in engaging in this mental act of relating you to them, you see arbitrarily, you can answer these questions, how you are better than them and how they are better than you. Uh, and then thirdly, the, the final question is, how are they the same? How are you the same as your negative self-evaluation of your performance? That's again really hard. It's a strange question. A simple answer is they both exist. You exist and also simultaneously your negative thoughts of your performance exist. Neither one of those is dead. And that's it. Nothing to do with them. So we, we, I don't need to, as, as a young violinist struggling with my identity and my talent, uh -huh. um, it's, I don't need to take this further. I just accept, okay, it's me. 
I'm not better and not worse than my thoughts. They're not worse, they're not better, and they're certainly not the same as you. But if you believe that your thoughts of your performance are the same as you, then you're gonna believe that you are a failure, that you are a bad person, you're a bad performer, et cetera. And this is where it's good to defuse from them because you recognize, oh, these are thoughts, they involve language, language is symbolic, language is symbolizing the events over here. I don't need to respond to language, aka my thoughts, in the same way. I, don't, I can just uh, notice, hey, there's my mind relating me to my thoughts, there's my mind re relating me to other people, huh, interesting. I don't have to respond to this if I don't want to. That's diffusion. You are pull, you're pulling apart your behavior from your thinking then and choosing to respond differently to your thinking. It's definitely a different perspective taking. It's definitely, I feel that uh, distancing yourself from your, I mean, not yourself, your thoughts from reality. Your thoughts of reality, exactly. Your, your language that symbolizes reality because thoughts involve language, right? Or, Even though your, your thoughts involve the word I or your thoughts involve the word you, but the word I and the word you is different than I or you, right? But language, you know, sometimes if we're too fused, this is, uh, I don't know if I made clear earlier, this is the trap of language. If we fuse, then we don't see the difference. And then our behavior is a slave to our thinking. And we follow thinking like it's rules to be literally followed. If I have the thought, uh, I must avoid performances when anxious, if I'm fused with that, my behavior will reflect that. I will avoid performances while anxious. But if I separate these two, I can notice, oh, well, there's my mind going. It's, it's having those thoughts I should avoid. Well, I'm just going to do it anyway. That's my response because I'm not fused with that thought. I'm just thinking that what's going on in the mind of, uh, in that person who doesn't want to recognize that the anxiety is uh, exactly ha right happening in the, in the mind. Uh, mm -hmm. My suggestion would be, because probably that's my experience, when I, from the time when I was teaching and also observing myself, that when I'm concentrating on my anxiety, basically my focus is on the anxiety, not on the job, not my task that I need to play and what I and how I right. need to play it. Yes. Is that correct? Uh, it's, it's common, if that's how you mean that. Oftentimes when performers have performance anxiety, they, they're too self-focused. Their focus is on themselves rather than on the task of performing. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. So yeah, the idea is to shift attention away through mindfulness uh, exercises onto the actual performance and just notice, oh, the anxiety is there too. But if I'm flexible enough to perform while anxious, then maybe I can perform while tired. I can perform while in pain. I can perform while angry. You know, that is increasing your flexibility. The more you can do in the presence of being anxious, then the more flexible you are. So to make it more understandable, even for myself, I'm just trying to translate it to another language, another words. So when you say being flexible whilst performing, even though you are tired or even though you're anxious, so I'm accepting that, yeah, I am tired or I'm anxious and I don't want to pretend that I'm not. No, I don't know. I'm just thinking that how, how, to, how, how would it work? But definitely accepting, I, I sense that that's good, that I don't want to be someone else or don't want to behave in a different way, which is not consistent with my own feelings. Uh, yes, it, it builds flexibility uh, slash resilience. The more you can do in the presence of that unwanted distress, then the more flexible you are. And the more flexible you are, then the more you can do 
And the more you can do, then you, you kind of expand upon your behavioral repertoire. So that way you, you increase your well-being because you're engaging in behavior more often that, that brings you in contact with your values, that brings you in contact with sources of joy, sources of reward, sources of reinforcement. And what about with those musicians who really fear public performance? So do they need to go and use the phrase, uh, feel the fear and do it anyway? Or is it better to, to slowly get used to that? I don't know if it matters how quickly or how slowly they do it, as long as um, they learn the essential ideas within ACT or within therapies that are similar, not even therapies, uh, within models that are similar. You know, if you can learn to be with your anxiety without struggling against it, and then use that energy that you have now saved up towards doing what you want to be doing more of in your performances, like expressing yourself more, connecting with the audience more, then that is flexibility there. And that's what ACT aims to teach. And I think that's what any good therapy or any good program also aims to teach. So they can improve themselves just simply by doing? Well, obviously doing more of what you value. That's something that we spend uh, the entire second half of the ACT therapy concretizing. How can you take this big picture nebulous thing like a value, which we can talk about, you know, but what does that mean exactly? How do we translate that into action? Uh, so we spend a lot of time uh, translating it, making it actionable, you know, serving as like a, I don't want to say a rule because, you know, we're trying to get out of rule following here as suggestions for behavior, basically. So let me give you an example, if that's going to be helpful. Uh, I worked with seven vocal students at a local school here in close to New Jersey, and uh, they all had performance anxiety. I used ACT to treat them, and it became evident that they valued expressing themselves emotionally. And so throughout the second half of the therapy, we talked about what does that mean exactly? How can you tell when someone is expressing themselves? What do they look like? What are they saying? What are they doing? So we came up with basically a script for how they can uh, express themselves while anxious. And what that meant was, you know, there are certain physical behaviors that one could make use of to express anxiety. There's verbal behaviors. There's facial gestures. You know, these are things that people do when they're anxious. So if you want to express yourself more, if that's the, the goal, then just make a commitment to doing that in your performances more often. And the more you express yourself, then you can express yourself while anxious. You can express yourself while sad, while angry, while who knows what, you know, and the emotional distress that you're feeling can then be used as a channel to be put into the expression. And probably by doing, even though these musicians would fear performance, they just prove themselves that they can do it. And they learned that that wasn't the end of the world if something exactly didn't happen how they imagined. Exactly, yes. Yes, if you're committed to expressing yourself because you value expressing yourself, then it kind of doesn't matter what the emotion is, uh, you can express it. You don't have to express it. And there may be some uh, listeners listening that you know, agree that classical music, perhaps as an institution, should follow the cues of the score and the composer, not always you know, the cues of the performer. Um, so if you want to become more expressive, then you have to work within the parameters of the score. You have to work within the parameters of what your teacher is uh, telling you to do, et cetera. But you also want to become more expressive uh, on your own too. If that really is something you value, you want to learn to follow your own cues that, that no one else can give you. Really, you have to create your own cues internally and then respond to your own cues. And that'll give you the confidence to, to learn how to be more expressive. If you follow other people's cues too much, then you may you may never know really what to do if they're not present for you. Because it, it is not internalized. Exactly. Actually, how you describe this whole method that you use, 
sports psychologists, when they mentally train their athletes, basically they prepare altogether the hints and, and the plans, plan A, B, C, and even to until Z, that what happens if it doesn't work? So instead of starting panicking, they, they just take plan D or K or whatever. Exactly. And, exactly. and the brain and the mind can remain still and clear rather than all the emotions uh, were disturbed as much that you start panicking. Is that something similar? Yeah, uh, I think that speaks to what we were talking about earlier with willingness. If you are willing to have the anxiety be part of the experience, then there's no need to panic in the presence of anxiety. You just, you just go with uh, the plan B or the plan C. And, and obviously, you know, being more specific is helpful. Plan B is something that's in accordance with your value. So if, uh, if, again, if you value connecting with the audience or expressing yourself, then you have actual examples of behaviors that you can make use of. And if you can't do behavior A, then you do behavior B. If you can't do behavior B, you do behavior C. And if you make a mistake, you make a mistake. I mean, that's, that's part of learning. Uh, you know, connecting this to perfectionism, I had intended to talk about, there was an interesting study done in Canada in the early 2000s that looked at medical students who had perfectionism. And the authors were hypothesizing there are two types of perfectionism. There's adaptive versus maladaptive. And with these students, the adaptive perfectionism, as you can imagine, it, it's a good thing. You know, those are the students who had high drive, high, uh, high achievement for success. They matched their talents with their career choice. So that way they were in alignment with, you know, their strengths and their talents rather than out of alignment. And most importantly, they found another feature was the students were not taking bad performances or bad tests personally as medical students, whereas the maladaptive perfectionists were. Their sense of self-worth was dependent on how they performed in tests or uh, other like competency exams in medical school. So I think that has direct implications to the things we were talking about earlier with perfectionistic musicians. You know, if, you're, if your reputation is on the line and you're basing your sense of self-worth on your performance, then you better learn how to defuse. Because if you don't go well, if the performance doesn't go well, your mind is going to tell you you're a bad person, you're a terrible performer, you're a terrible person, et cetera, et cetera. So that study in particular, as far as I know, uh, ACT has not been used with musicians who have perfectionism because I haven't done that yet. I, I, I haven't felt the need to, again, like I said, performance anxiety and perfectionism are so intertwined. There may not be a need to separate those two, but... Well, that's yeah, the first think... time I'm here because I did my PhD partly linking and examining the link between perfectionism and you will not surprise when I said in the, in the regression analysis. Okay, perfectionism explains performance anxiety. That does not surprise me at all. They're, they're so overlapping. What does it mean to be perfectionistic? It means, you know, focusing on avoiding making mistakes. The, the strongest link was between how satisfied or dissatisfied musicians are with their achievement and uh, what kind of frustration level they have after making a mistake during practicing and performing. And uh, it was still significant, but wasn't as strong. Uh, the fear of negative evaluation from others, that wasn't as strong. And I knew it wouldn't be. Cool. Probably stronger that they fear their own self-evaluations, their own negative self-evaluations. So actually, it all comes from inside, from musicians. The thing is that I think they don't realize how bad they are for themselves when they start thinking in a very negative way. They think they are afraid of criticism from, uh, from the audience, from peers and experts or even lay audiences. Right. But the process... But really, it's their own, their own criticism, their own evaluation of their performance. Yes, it does. 
Uh, well, you can see how fusion versus diffusion, knowing the difference between those two, and in particular learning to diffuse, you can see how helpful that would be then. You know, because one's thoughts of their performance is different than the actual performance, but we engage with our thinking all day long, right? So if we are fused with our thinking, and if we're responding with anxiety to our thinking, then that's going to happen potentially all day long if behavior and thinking are fused there. So it's really helpful to kind of disentangle yourself from your thinking. So that way you can notice, oh, uh, hmm, maybe I actually fear my own self-evaluations more than I fear the others. Huh. You don't realize that until you take a step back to study your response, or study your reaction to your thinking, and then it becomes apparent to you, oh, I think I'm afraid of my own self-evaluations. How about that? I'm just wondering actually that how many musicians be happy to get help that they can do better because getting this help definitely would improve their performance mm -hmm. and, uh, and would comfort them in their preparation. Absolutely. And uh, I'd imagine that most, if not all of them would want the help. And this speaks to what we, what I was talking about earlier about efficacy research. Uh, in my opinion, I don't think we need to keep ACT within the laboratory, which is a very highly controlled environment, uh, and just continue to study it in the laboratory to see how does it compare versus CBT, how does it compare versus beta blocker medication. If you can pull it out of there and start applying it in real world settings, which is a different type of research, that's not efficacy research, that's effectiveness research, and see, okay, you know, we know that this therapy is efficacious in treating social anxiety disorder, whether or not we want to see if it's efficacious in treating music performance anxiety, we'll leave that up to, you know, the researchers. But let's start applying this in the real world. And I'm starting to do this now uh, with some new research of my own. I have been training singing teachers in the UK in using ACT coaching with their students who have performance anxiety. Uh, obviously, I can't train them in using ACT psychotherapy because they're not psychotherapists. Uh, but ACT also exists in coaching form. It's been used with athletes. It's been used uh, at the workplace in the UK. It's been used in other non-clinical settings for a number of years, and it, it's shown to be an evidence-based uh, coaching model, too. So the great thing about ACT is that it also doesn't require a certification to be used. And in fact, I agree with the logic behind that. The founders felt that if you create a certification process, you create kind of a hierarchy where, uh, you know, there are those who are certified and those who are not. And that just, that makes things kind of messy in our mission. Our mission as ACT researchers and clinicians is just to just promote and disseminate this information and these techniques to anyone really who is trained in using them. So I had trained the singing teacher and she actually in turn used ACT coaching with one of her vocal students, a music theater student at a school in the UK. And she, she got the same result. And uh, she did it in half the time. She did it in six sessions as opposed to 12 sessions. And she did it without exposure therapy, which I don't know if you know what exposure therapy means. No. Uh, it, it's a clinical treatment that is used to uh, eliminate fears, basically. Uh, you continually expose the patient to the thing that they fear until eventually they habituate. They no longer fear that stimulus. So uh, typically that's thought to be the most uh, effective or most important part of anxiety treatment. Uh, but this singing teacher used ACT coaching without any uh, exposure therapy, and she was able to get a very clinically significant result, a very identical result to what I got as a psychologist working with patients. I'm writing a self-help book for musicians. Uh, it'll be called ACT for Musicians. It's going to be a course in ACT therapy, like an entire course, each of the, uh, the six processes, and then specifically how to use ACT to treat performance anxiety, how to enhance performance with ACT, and how to treat other kind of common problems like pain and injury and a few others too. So uh, stay tuned for that. Hopefully that'll be published in 2021. It's a good news that uh, teachers can help students 
so that students mm -hmm. don't need to go to specialists in order to find out and differentiate between their thoughts and themselves. Specialists are harder to find sometimes and, and they cost money and maybe students are too busy. They don't have time to find a specialist or even to meet with one or they don't have access to one. So yeah, I'm hoping that th this is an example of this effectiveness research where we, we take ACT out of the lab and just start making it workable in the real world, basically. And many music schools or departments in larger universities, they don't have a performance psychologists. So they need, they need to work with the existing faculty the way they are. So uh, hopefully this is uh, the first in many research studies to come showing that music teachers can learn ACT coaching and can be effective in managing their students' performance anxiety. I feel that we covered a lot of things. And for me, the most interesting part was the imitating a case and playing with it. I really had an insight to how this therapy may work. And um, thank you so much for sharing uh, your experiences. Um, I think it's really highly valuable. Thank you for putting this together for me. It's an honor to speak with you. Um, the, the MPA research community is so small. So, you know, we're kind of a tight knit community, excuse me. So I think the more conversations we can have like this, then the more we can spread the word uh, to other musicians, to other people who need the help. After listening to Dave and completing the exercise he offered, perhaps you wonder that struggling against stage fright is a waste of energy, as it is easier to accept your state of mind and move on. If you missed the first part of the conversation with Dr. David Junkers, you can find it by clicking on the link in the description below. If you have experienced performance anxiety and you would like to share with the podcast community, please write it in a comment below. Also, if you have questions or you have topic suggestions that you would like to talk about or listen to in the future, uh, please request it in a comment or send me a message via the perfectionist.org website. And until the next episode, keep growing a healthy perfectionist and wish you well to remember, done is better than perfect.